For my son, the slide behind us is like the shotgun start to the race. And I need that slide for toothbrushing time at night. We'll go back into Matthew chapter 26 this morning. And as we do, I want to start with a few questions that I believe this text will answer for us this morning. There's the type of questions, the type of struggles that you and I experience. It could be the, the wayward, the parent of a wayward child who is facing yet another day of life's chores. What do we say to that parent? Or maybe it's the employee who's been treated unjustly, about to be unemployed. Or what hope do we give someone when the election didn't turn out quite as we hoped and the whole thing just seems to circle the drain? I believe our text this morning answers these questions because these are all very normal scenarios. These are all normal circumstances of the average person's life. And this morning we step back in time into an ordinary first century home. We'll enter a normal room with a traditional meal, just regular looking people sitting around and a poor man in his 30s at the head. In fact, nothing could be more normal than the events of the day we will visit, nothing more profound. In Matthew chapter 26, our Lord prepares for the cross. And as he does so, he's going to infuse normal, everyday events with profound meaning. You see, it's not just another day. It's not just another meal. And this is always true when the power of God permeates our lives. In this time, for the Lord, every second of the calendar and every step of the people, it's all under the control of of God. Jesus is in control of everyday life, and he can bring meaning to ordinary rituals. These are essential truths for our lives this morning. They are, in fact, the answer to the questions we asked at the outset. If our Lord can reign over what is common If he can do that back then in the days in which he lived, how much more can he do it in our lives today? All of the sadness and the injustice and the frustration, Jesus is using it for the glory of God. I want to pick up in verse 17. In verses 17 through 25, Jesus controls his fate. Jesus controls his fate. In this passage, he sets the table and he directs the servant. Look at those first few verses in 17 through 19. Jesus sets the table. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. As we mentioned in Matthew 26, Jesus makes preparations for his death. And we've already met a few involved in these preparations. We've met chief priests. We've met elders, 
the Jewish ruling class. We've met Caiaphas. He's a high priest in title, but a mafioso in every other way. We met Mary, who anointed Jesus with perfume. We met Judas Iscariot, who was a disciple. And we met, of course, Jesus himself. In verse 17, arrangements are made for a meal. It's the first day of unleavened bread. This kicked off a week celebration. The Jewish people commemorated their exodus out of Egypt. And the central event would be the Passover meal, a meal of roasted lamb. And you heard how our Lord assigned disciples to go and acquire a room. Luke records it was Peter and John he sent for this task. And all this took place the day before the Lord's death. It would be Thursday. Jesus, in this account, controls the people, the place, the preparations. Luke's gospel, again, is going to fill all of this in for us. John and Peter will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, back in this day, women and children used to do this task. So this is almost like a a call sign something like a signal. They were to follow this man to a certain house, and there they'll meet a second person, the owner. The owner ushers them in. He supplies them with a place to dine. It's a house in Jerusalem, and it contains, quote, a large furnished upper room. They discover this room, again, by relaying the Lord's message, almost like a password to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Our Lord has has planned all of this out. He's directed his disciples. He's planned the meal. He's controlled these events. In fact, in these final few hours, it's the last 24 of his life, No event transpires outside of the sovereign control of God, even down to the details, to the address, to the menu, to the guest room. And our Lord not only set the table, He directs the traitor. Look at verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So we're now inside the house, in the room, we're at the meal. It'd be helpful at this point to discard any image we might have in our mind of da Vinci's Last Supper. You're familiar with that painting, Twelve disciples sitting on each side of Jesus at one long buffet table. Well, the meal did not occur that way. Rather, it would have been a very low-sitting, rectangular table, probably lower than knee height, right around there. 
And they would have sat in, in a U-shape on three sides of that table. We might say they, might have, they, they, they reclined. It's probably a better word than they, they sat. Because what they did is they stretched a, a long cushion on each side of that table. And with one elbow resting their head upon it, they, by, their bodies came back off of that table at an angle. They would use their other hand to eat and drink. Now this, by the way, makes sense of, of John's record. You may have re- read this in the Gospel of John. John describes himself as reclining on the bosom of Jesus. So John's Gospel records this same meal, and John's saying basically he's leaning in on the Lord. He's, if the Lord's leaning this way, John is leaning right inside of him there beside him at the meal. Well, you didn't come here this morning for a seating plan, but the seating plan here matters, and we're going to come back to why it does in a moment. But what really sticks out to me is verse 21. I say Jesus here, he drops a bomb. It's, it's mid-meal. And if it were not enough, back in verse 2, that he predicted his death, he now says that death will come by a disciple? They all respond in deep grief, I could imagine so. They're distressed, they're sorrowful. That word is used of the rich young ruler. You can recall months back in the parable, excuse me, in the exchange that he had. Jesus challenged him to give up all that he had. It's what kept him from following Christ. And he would not, he could not, he walked away grieved. But notice as well what is absent from this account. It's any awareness that the person, the traitor, is Judas. Judas looked like an ordinary disciple. In the ministry of Jesus, we might call him the team treasurer. I mean, this had to be an awkward dinner for him, right? Back in verse 15, he received 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. This guy's committed. What's it like for him at the dinner? Is he looking Jesus in the eye? Is he making small talk with him at dinner? Is he doing all this with his hand in his pocket, tinkering around with the 30 pieces of silver? Verse 23 provides the sign of the traitor. He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, if there's just one bowl at the table to share, this could be anyone. I assume there are probably a few of them. This would have been a a fruit puree that was used as part of the the Passover meal progression. Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. John fills this in in chapter 13, verse 26. When Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. He went out and immediately it was night. John's going to go on to indicate that the disciples still, not even thinking that this could be Judas, they thought that Jesus sent him out to give money to the poor or maybe to get more food for the Passover It didn't even register that it could have been Judas who'd betray him. 
And now I want to go back to that seating plan. Remember, on one side of Jesus was John. John says he reclined in his bosom. Jesus dips his bread and hands it to Judas, sitting on the other side of Jesus. So that puts Jesus in the center of the meal with John on one side and Judas on the other. And all Judas had to do here is literally turn to his side and confess to Jesus. Jesus literally lays right beside him. I bet he could smell the perfume from Mary's anointment coming off of Jesus. That's how close he laid to the Lord. And right here in this account, Judas has an off-ramp. Judas can repent. Judas has time to turn from his deed. And more, he's exposed. He's naked in this plot. Jesus knows it's him. You know, I think it's one thing for Judas to betray him suddenly. But Jesus sees it's coming. It's now a very close, a very personal, a very intimate type of betrayal. I mean, you and I understand this. There's a sin that happens to us in the moment. There's a moment of weakness or some unexpected temptation, but there's a different kind of sin altogether, a kind of sin that is prepared, a kind of sin that's been calculated, a kind of sin that's been deliberated and done deliberately. This is not a man who's just simply swept up in some act of betrayal. He stared Jesus in the eye. If you have some sin standing between you and the Lord today, you can simply turn to him and confess it. He's that close. He's that aware. Even these sins within our hearts, the things we contemplate, Jesus knows of those as well. He's in complete control of the situation, and he knows all things. And you and I always have an off-ramp. We always have an out. We can simply turn to Christ and confess it and receive grace and receive forgiveness, especially if we're deliberating, if we're calculating some sin, if we're planning or plotting, if we know it's wrong, or if our conscience condemns us there's still time to take that ramp. And that might be something, some way to apply this message to our lives today. If this is you, now's your off-ramp. Today is the day of repentance. Well, in this account so far, our Lord has been in complete control of the situation. And I want you to see that what he did here as well is he pressed that plan. By identifying Judas by understanding the timetable, by being in complete control over it all, he moved Judas along. He sped up the clock, we might say. It would, in fact, be on Passover that the Passover lamb was killed. So this morning so far, if Jesus can know a certain man If he can know a certain man carrying a certain load, walking in a certain city, entering a certain room, housing a certain room, and if at that central meal, a certain prediction triggered a certain person to ask a certain question, if that caused a certain betrayal to occur at just the right time so a certain lamb is crucified on a certain day, if Jesus can do all that, can he not minister to you and I? in our daily lives as well.
In verse 26 through verse 29, Jesus fulfills his word. Jesus fulfills his word. He brings an extraordinary meaning to Passover. In verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We call this the Last Supper. This is our Lord's last meal. It's his last gathering with his disciples. It's the last Passover underneath something called the Old Covenant. He's going to take this meal and forever infuse it with new meaning. Even down to today, when you and I partake, it means something special, something new, something different than it used to. You see, the original Passover, it it remembered God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Now we call it the Lord's Supper. We, We remember our deliverance from the enslavement to sin and life apart from God. Traditionally, four cups of wine would have been passed around at the Passover meal. Following that first cup making its round, they all drank from the same cup. Bitter herbs would have been dipped into fruit sauce. Each of these things meant something as they reflected back. They were somewhat symbolic. At that point, someone would have spoke up and explained the Passover event. They would have sung part of the Psalms. They then would have passed the second cup of wine. At this point, unleavened bread would have been eaten. That's where verse 26 falls into play. They would then eat roasted lamb and pass around the third cup and sing another psalm. That leaves one more cup, a fourth cup. This is called the cup of praise or the cup of consummation. And there's some debate about whether Jesus drank of this cup or not. Again, he himself would be the completion being the the Passover lamb and the fulfillment. But we saw in our text here this morning that that Jesus, when he took that bread at this moment, he gave the bread new meaning. Back when God issued Passover to Israel, he gave them instructions for how to handle it. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. The bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Here God is speaking about how they ought to conduct their Passover. Leavened bread would have had time to rise. Well, they were in a rush. Unleavened bread is the bread of haste. It's called the bread of affliction. And this Passover bread pointed to Jesus. His body, though we know no bones were broken, was still beaten and torn for our deliverance. The bread is a tangible reminder of our redemption and our deliverance. He gave the wine new meaning. As far as I can tell, the wine symbolized freedom and and royalty. In verse 27, it symbolizes his blood. Why did Jesus need to shed blood? 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9. This has been the pattern of God throughout redemption history. His covenant with Noah meant blood. His covenant with Moses meant blood. His covenant with Abraham meant blood. His covenant with you means blood. It's not your blood, it's the blood of Jesus. He says it's the blood of the covenant. This is a new covenant or a new agreement. And in this covenant, God saves sinners like you and I by the shed blood of Jesus. He gave his life as a sacrifice to make you and I right with God. And so certain is Jesus of the effect of what he's done that he's going to drink that fourth cup with you in heaven. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. These Passover over events are, are pointing to him. He's fulfilling them. He's giving them new meaning. He's infusing them with meaning. And I want you to see this morning in this section how these verses are both deeply theological on one hand, but they're also immensely practical for you and I. I want you to see first that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, a fixture, and any Passover meal was the lamb. Where's the lamb mentioned in our account? It's not. In any gospel account, Jesus is that lamb. Jesus gave himself as the Passover lamb. And this new covenant fulfills all of those Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament, if you've read it, is filled with prescriptions and instructions and commands. It's one sacrifice after another. I think the priest at the temple was more like a butcher at a slaughterhouse. But no more. You don't have to do any of that anymore. I don't have to do any of that anymore. There was no class like that in seminary for good reason. But his sacrifice means that you can come in here just as you are. Entrance this morning. Entrance into the, into the throne room of God through prayer in Christ. It's not done by flour or by fruit or by wine. You don't need to drag a bull in here. We don't sell lambs in the foyer. You'll never need to burn the fat or the kidneys or the lobe of the liver to approach God, you don't need a grain offering or a drink offering or a burn offering or a peace offering or a sin offering. All you need to do right now from where you are in the quietness of your heart is pray to God through Christ. That's all you need to do to access God. And the sacrifice of Jesus did this. He made this possible. I think it's a little hard for us to imagine being so far removed from the Old Testament way of doing things to realize, if this is the right word, how easy, how simple it is and how blessed we are to do it this way. Well, I want you to see secondly that his sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice. And you know that word substitution. The disciples did not die for their sins. Jesus died for their sins. He was a substitute. 
It was his beaten body. It was his spilled blood. He did not do that for himself. He committed no sin. He lived a perfect life. He did that for his disciples. He did that for you and I. That is to say that Jesus died in our place. And the benefits that come with that sacrifice, through faith in Jesus, those benefits are anyone's who believe upon him. Notice he used the word covenant. He said that he's introducing a covenant. A covenant is simply an agreement between two different parties. Jesus offers up a new covenant. Under the old covenant, Israel had to keep God's law. In response to that, God would bless them. Moses inaugurated that covenant. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. There you get that idea of blood as a sacrifice. He said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Like the old covenant, the news inaugurated by blood. Jesus says, My blood of the covenant is poured out for you. That would happen tomorrow at the cross. This new covenant is everlasting. Verse 29 hints at it. This is a covenant that will not cease. It's not going to rust, mold, expire, combust. This covenant is universal. It's for all people. If you believe upon Jesus this morning and you are not a Jewish man or woman, you prove the point. This new covenant is unconditional. Your standing before God is based upon Jesus and not what type of day you're having. Jesus, fourthly, forgives sins. This is huge. Every person on this planet walks around condemned by God. Every person sins against a very holy God, an infinitely holy God. Every person is on death row. Every person expects capital punishment for capital crimes. This penalty is a just penalty. This penalty fits the crime, and the penalty is an eternal separation from God for the sins that we commit. So to be forgiven, to be forgiven by something someone else did, that's incredible. And that's what Jesus does. He pours out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's objective truth, believer. If you're wrestling with doubt, if you're wondering, well, there's a sin that I've committed that's too great to be forgiven, that's not true. All sins are forgiven all time through faith in Jesus. That's an enduring reality for every Christian. As certain as his blood was spilled, so also is God's forgiveness for you. His forgiveness, fifthly, is for the sins of many. That's a definite atonement. By atonement, I mean that Jesus has repaired our relationship with God. Forgiveness is is simply not universal. Universalism believes that that eventually all people go to heaven. Now, there are passages that, that teach a broad sacrifice. John the Baptist spoke it. He said, there's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to redeem everybody but it specifically redeems some or many, namely those who believe the gospel. 
He says it's poured out for many, and those many are irrevocably saved. And that brings us to one last observation in verse 29. Jesus makes a promise. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's almost as though our Lord is absolutely certain of that day. He can already envision it. He can envision a time where he will drink that wine new with his followers in God's kingdom. The disciples will be there. You will be there. Christ will be there. And so certain is this salvation for all who believe that Jesus is able to make this promise. It's a guarantee for the believer. Well, our Lord brought full meaning to this Passover event. It meant so much in Old Testament Israel. It means so much for us today. Even in these murky darkness of his final hours, Jesus was still directing events. He did amazing things with just an ordinary day and, and another common meal. No one would have guessed what he would accomplish through his death. In the year 1945, at 51 feet long and 8 feet tall, weighing over 9,000 pounds, a 50-foot drive shaft hummed along at 5 horsepower, this was, in fact, the first computer. A few years later, in 1949, one mathematician concluded, we've reached the limit of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. In a story about computer phobia... Apparently, fear of computers is real. One author wrote a very grim prediction about computers, quote, computers won't make toast or vacuum a carpet. (laughs) Computers appeared just like any other gadget. Maybe they pass, maybe they fail. It's just another invention, another day for inventors. Yet we know now that they transformed the world. From five tons and 500 miles of wire to six ounces in your pocket, no one imagined what the computer would do. Holly's phone is showing us how well they ring when someone calls. That's a great sermon illustration, Holly. Thank you for your background. But the same needs to be said for Jesus, does it not? No one expected him to do what he did and to accomplish what he accomplished. He's just a normal-looking peasant, poor, with no place to lay his head. And he accomplished for you and I a right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins. And he brought us in under this new covenant that he shed with his own blood, his own body, beaten and torn for us. It's amazing what God has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're having a hard time this week, thinking of something to be thankful for, we always have that. Do we not? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your body for us. You're so wise in how you've spoken and so powerful in what you've accomplished. I pray that you would grant us a grace to see the many gifts you've given us in our salvation. I pray that we would 
If any here do not know Christ, believe upon him this day. I pray you will bless us as we depart from here today, as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week. We would see not only the good gift that we have in you, but also in our families and in the many gifts of grace around us. Lord, we love you and we love what you've done for us on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.